Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Almisha L. Campbell. Almisha is the Assistant Vice President for Research and Economic Development slash Director for Technology Transfer and Commercialization at Jackson State University. Almisha provides support for the overall direction of the Division of Research and Economic Development and manages the intellectual property process from a triage of invention disclosures to commercialization. Almisha provides strategic direction and vision for defining partnerships in research, commercialization, entrepreneurship, and innovation initiatives between JSU and other institutions, funding agencies, and industry stakeholders. Almisha is the principal investigator for the National Science Foundation-funded JSU Innovation Corp. site designed to train teams of faculty and students how to commercialize their ideas using the Lean Startup methodology. Almisha also leads a number of initiatives geared towards increasing the innovation, technology transfer, invention, and entrepreneurial activities at JSU, such as the JSU Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which houses the XR Academy, Makerspace, and Learning Collaboratory. Almisha received her bachelor's degree from the University of Central Florida, a master's degree in mass communications, and a doctor of philosophy degree in public policy and administration from Jackson State University. Almisha holds membership in professional organizations such as the Licensing Executive Society, the Association of University Technology Managers, and the American Society of Public Administration. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Almisha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. Well, it's great to have you take part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And now, Almisha, the way I generally like to start the podcast off is asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Jackson at Jackson State University? Ah, that's a good question. (laughs) So I'm from the Caribbean island of St. Kitts and Nevis. I had a probably an eight-year career um, before I came to the United States. I spent most of my career, six years of that eight years, in the shipping industry. So I did the cargo, the cruise, airline, and then moved into the marketing arena for a public um, company in St. Kitts and Nevis, um, one of the largest companies there. And then I decided I want to come to, you know, to school um, so I can further my career. Of course, it was a male-dominated um, company, and I figure if I'm supposed to move from assistant manager up to the manager position, then I need to go and get my degree. So I came, um, went to Tallahassee Community College, then to University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida. I met a young man who told me about Jackson State University and that I should 
come here and get my master's degree before going back home because I still had a job um, while I was here in my undergraduate for the three years. So I still went home in the summer, still did projects and everything for the company. Needless to say, before I even got into my master's program, I got married and had a, had a nice, um, beautiful baby girl. Then I came to Jackson State University for my undergrad, my master's in mass communication, and they found a job here at Jackson State University. So that's how I end up in, in Mississippi and at Jackson State, um, a quick, not, um, quick way through. But in terms of tech transfer, um, when I initially came to Jackson State University, there was an editorial associate. So I work in the um, research office, working and putting all the materials together, all the annual reports, brochures, um, um, research journals, working in that area because that was my passion at the time. And then we joined the National Academy of Inventors and they asked me to host the event. So I put that event on and invited the president, inducted, I think it was at the time about four or five of our faculty members in the local chapter of the National Academy of Inventors. And during that, the vice president of research at the time, he said, oh, you know, we're going to hire someone um, to handle the tech transfer operations at the university. And, you know, we were looking around, where did that come from? Because it came out of the blue. Needless to say, about um, an hour after the session, I realized that that person would be me. <laughs> I had no idea um, what tech transfer was, what it entails. Of course, I knew cop copyright patents trademark, but I didn't understand the full gamut of what it meant to be that person. And so um, I met Tanaga Boozer. Um, she was at FAMU at the time and quickly called her up and said, look, I was just given this task and there's no way I'm going to give up this opportunity to learn this field or to get involved. And I spent a week um, at FAMU with Tanagabuza shadowing her. And at the same time, I think she was in charge of membership. Um, she was on the membership committee for Autumn. So she, she invited me to join Autumn. She invited me to join um, licensing executive societies. I went to my first training session within a month of meeting her um, in fa at FAMU, went through training with Chris Noble. At the time, I still felt like this is not my field. I spent so much time in marketing. I spent so much time in mass communication. But Chris Noble said to me, and I will never forget, he said to me, he said, you might be the ideal person for this position because you're able to communicate with the scientists. You're able to market what they're working on. And I think this is a great thing and you should not feel intimidated. And it was at that moment that I decided I'm going to stay with this field. I'm going to continue working with it and I'm going to find my little area of where I can contribute. And so that's how I got involved with, um, with Tech Transfer. I love it. <laughs> that's an incredible journey. I think that's probably one of the most incredible journeys to tech transfer I've heard yet on this podcast. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the Center for Innovation, Entrepreneurship and Economic Development at Jackson State? Absolutely. So um, around 2015, I participated in the National Science um, Foundation Innovation Core program with a faculty member. At the time, I thought about when I looked at what they were doing with the ICO program, I said, this is very interesting. And I think this might be a way for us to get tech transfer developed at Jackson State University. We can work with faculty 
through this ICO process and they may be able to come up with um, IP and we can work through through that. And so I said, I wanted to participate, but since I didn't have any NSF lineage, I convinced a faculty member who had that NSF funding to apply and that I'll be the entrepreneurial lead. So even though I wasn't a student, I went as the entrepreneurial lead and I, I absorbed everything about the process and how that works. And I came back and said, you know what? Let's go ahead and apply for uh, for ICO site program. And so we did that. But in the meantime, we realized that we had to develop an um, an innovation ecosystem. Um, and I thought all of that put together would help people to understand what we were doing in TechTrans. So it would help disclosures and that we would have a unique advantage of we know what they're working on. We know what their ideas are. We know um, everything about their lab from the research side, but how can we mentor them through the process and how to work with IP and make that process very seamless for them? And so um, that happened. And then I started getting all these ideas about we need a center for innovation. We need a place where people can go to where they can ideate, create and, you know, mess up and start over. And um I didn't get much support um, previous to my new VP coming in, Dr. Uh, Joseph Whitaker. And he came in and he said he wanted to talk to all of the staff members about where they are in the career and where they wanted to go. And one of the things he told us that when I leave here, I want to know I left you better than I met you. And I thought that was very impressive because throughout my career, I'd never heard someone tell me that especially from a man, you know, because like I told you, I work in a male-dominated company. I came to Jackson State and at one point here, I had a female VP, but I never felt that someone really cared about the entire staff and where the trajectory is going in their career and wanted to make sure they do that. And so he said, what did you want? What do you want to do? I said, well, I wanted to create a space for all the faculty and students to be able to have access to these resources so I can have, you know, hands-on contact with them to work for the IP process. And he said, what does that place look like? And I said, well, maybe like a center for innovation. He said, I have something for you. And it so happened that he had told the president when he came on board that he wanted to create a center for innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, of course, his idea about it was, was you know, very big and we didn't have the capacity here. And I said, if you put me in charge of this, I promise you I'm going to make this work. <laughs> So, yeah. So he said, go ahead, go for it. And I, you know, we found a space, started creating everything. First of all, we presented to the president and it was my first time seeing a president take so much notes like he was taking. notes. And after my presentation, he asked a lot of questions. He said, what do you need from me? I said, nothing at the moment. I'll be I'll be back. And so within, I told him I'll be back in six months, but I was back in four months. And in four months, I was able to show him the space that we developed. I said, we had all these 3D printers in the basement. No one knew how to get there. No one had the keys. But if you give me access, this is what I did. And I went in his name and said, the president said, I can have this. So I brought all the 3D printers up in the space. We bought um, virtual reality equipment. Um, bought all the software um, for students to develop. So we had the, uh, um, Adobe and all everything that the students needed. And so I talked to students who were in this space, the engineers, the computer scientists, the marketing students, the journalism students, got them together on Sundays and Saturdays and started asking questions of them about what's going on, what are you lacking in your classroom, what would you like to see? And so the students were able to tell me the new best things that are out there, all the hackathons that they want to go to, the different things, but why they're not prepared. And so my job was to find the funds to 
you know, make sure we had those resources for the students. I built around the idea, but said to them, now I'm not going to make this static where it cannot move. I want it to be a place where when you come in or any other student come in and give ideas, we can easily move it around and you can do it. So um, needless to say, we opened the center officially in January of this year. And we had an overwhelming amount of um, people who came to see the opening that I was so shocked. We had large companies like HP and different things that came in and wanted to see the space because they had never heard about this at an HBCU before. And the space right now has five collaboration rooms. It has a production room so their faculty and students can go in and do, whether it's a pitch competition, whether it's something for their class, whether it's a lot of them coming and developing their own music. So I got a keyboard so they can play all of that in the, in the, in the production room. And then we have a 75-seat, um, what I call a collaboratory for training. And we have all the whiteboards, all the digital media stuff. We have a 25-station virtual reality academy inside of that place. And then we had a, we have a makerspace of about 13 3D printers, um, 3D scanners, um, about 12 different computers. And then we have for the non-STEM people, because we got questions about, well, I'm not STEM. How do I do this? I said, well, there's a way for you to um, partner with some of the STEM students because virtual reality needs people um, in different areas. You need the art students. So that was the first thing I did in bringing a wide array of students um, in the space. And so we have embroidered machines. We have all sorts of stuff that non technical, deep technology folks may want to work on ideas. And we do have um, that in the space. And then we created a K-12 program, which is a passion of mine. So we do that in the summer, Young Innovators Program with the K-12, and we teach them virtual reality, 3D modeling and oh, everything all the way up to ideating and creating a business. That's just a passion of mine. So I bring in my 13-year-old daughter, and she teach them virtual reality, how to design and um, we do that. But then one of the, pa- the the biggest passion for me in that space was creating um, the Innovation Fellows. So I get 10 students from different disciplines every semester and mentor them to the process. And some of them teach them some parts of the tech transfer. And um, hopefully that one day some of them would say, I want to go into this field because I didn't have a pathway to tech transfer, but wanted to create, you know, a pathway for them that eventually they can intern in the tech transfer office and they could go to the USPTO and try for something. They are, are working in any other organization and understand what this is, even for their own businesses. And so we've had the ICO site program embedded in there and different opportunities that we've had so far to make sure that that Center for Innovation works. And we're so happy and excited about it because um, we presented for you the back in September and won the most innovative um, <laughs> um, innovation center on, on campuses. So we were happy about that because when we created it, we were just created something to give our students and faculty access and have them working together rather than in silos that they're accustomed to and break away those silos and bring it into one place so they can work on it. So it's a lot of stuff, It's but it's a passion of mine. So even though it's not under the purview of what I was expected to do, it's something I wanted to create to make my job easy as well. <laughs> All I can think to say, Amisha, is congratulations. That's extremely impressive. And the, the depth and breadth of everything you're able to do in that center of innovation from, you know, young kids and, you know, teaching them virtual reality up to creating fellows. And, and that's something I've heard from other 
young people in tech transfers that there's no pathway. That's incredible. So congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So switching gears a little bit, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the NIGMS Accelerator Network with the University of Kentucky and Accelerate Health. Okay, so this is a a program that it's an SDTR funded by the National Institute of General Medical Sciences. And um, about a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago, University of Kentucky reached out to me and said, we are creating this hub um, for tech transfer and we wanted Jackson State to be a part of it. And immediately I said, yes, you know, because we, we don't usually get asked to be a part of this type of networks. And it was an opportunity for me to help add some value um, for the university inside of it. And while at the beginning, the money um, didn't matter, you know, my, my VP said, that's all. I said, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at getting um, the connections. I'm looking at the resources that we can bring back to our faculty. So we joined that and we were awarded. Um, we're in our third year now of that award. Um, University of Mississippi, um, initially the leader in the state of Mississippi. And we are now going after non-compete um, renewal for this award. But one of the greatest things that came out of this, other than my faculty getting one-on-one with SBIR training, apart from them getting into access for um, executives um, um, and getting access to expertise. The best thing that came out of this for me was the opportunity to lead Enrich. It's a, it's a program, pre-accelerator program, focused on healthcare technologies for, um, for HBCUs. So Enrich is engaging researchers in innovation and commercialization at HBCUs. And we just finished our first um, cohort in November, November 20th, and we ended with a pitch competition. So throughout the process, we taught them about the IP process. We taught them how to engage with their tech transfer office. If they didn't have a tech transfer office, where can they go to get help? Um, So we walked them through those different pathways. And then we spent four weeks of teaching them um, the Lean Startup methodology, which is coming out of um, similar to the ICO program. Then we start to talk about um, how they can do the startups, um, where they can go. For example, in the state of Mississippi, we have something called the Mississippi Urban Research Authority. So if their faculty working at the university can have material and financial interest in companies, they can, um, they can also um, license the technology that they work on and start a company with that. And so these are the things that we taught them through that entire process. But at the end, we had a pitch competition where they pitched their ideas that they were working on throughout the process. And it was just amazing to see where they started. And at the end, to see the the wealth of information that we were able to impart on them for 10 weeks. And some stuff they taught us too, because they went and looked for other information, which was phenomenal. And so that was open to 31 HBCUs in the idea states. And the idea states are the regions that um, National Institutes of Health and not, not doesn't have a lot of um, NIH funding. And now we're open to all HBCUs. So I think right now there are 105 HBCUs. So in the spring wow. of 2021, we would open to all HBCUs because we had such an overwhelming response. We had people outside of the idea state regions were saying, well, why couldn't we be involved? And so while the NIGMS funding was just for the idea states, we're now able to open um, open up that program. That's fantastic. Congratulations. That's that's really impressive. Thank you. Now, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about your office. And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with your office at Jackson State, can you tell us a little bit about it and how it's structured? Okay, so 
it's it's uno it's just me it's a one person office has been a one person office for the last 11 years yes it has been um but I generally, our patent attorney is external to the university, but they're located here in Mississippi. We have a, we've had a good working relationship with them. Um, I've, I've do a, a lot of the market assessment, but if it gets a little bit beyond me, then I have an external person that I work with to do that. A lot of the licensing operations, we will do the initial stage and the negotiation of the licensing. And then we've had um, a company recently that we, um, we have an agreement with to assess to assist with some of the licensing agreements, um, but we find that we do better when we're doing it with the faculty members throughout that process. So we're still working um, through that process. So we're structured that way. We do all of our patent payments and everything internally, um, but we also, like I said, through um, through the Innovation Fellows Program, is getting one or two students to come in and help. And, you know, they help with a lot of the customer discovery phases when we're doing the market assessment. Um, and then we work, um, like I said, synergistically with the faculty because they have the expertise. And so we send them off to conferences and different things. We uh, we go with them. We ask them what to, what to look for. We tell them what to look for and how we go through that entire process. So. Uh, my goal is within the next two years to have a licensing associate, you know, in the office because I do understand that we can license a lot of the technology prior to going to the patent process. And I think that would be very helpful for us. So that's my goal. And I've put that on the table to my VP. So we're working towards that. I think that would be great because it sounds like you're wearing a lot of different hats. And yeah. <laughs> given how uh, you're, you must be extremely organized and I think you're probably very efficient at what you do, but everybody has their own limits, so to speak. Yeah. And you could probably even do more if you had more help. So, Absolutely. And that's the goal. Um, you know, like I said, when I do the stuff in the Center for Innovation and these fellows program, it's just to build that awareness. And it's also to allow the um, administration to know that I'm passionate about it. I'm putting in my extra time. Um, but now it's time when I ask for you to now come and, and put something forward. It means that I've put in the background work and I'm not just asking you for money. I've done the work. Exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned inventions. You talked about working with outside patent counsel. Would you mind sharing with us um, the number of invention disclosures you had in the last year, as well as any copyrights or trademarks you might have filed on as well? Yeah, I'll just say this. When I first started, um, we probably had one invention disclosure for entire year. Wow. Um, and it's not because faculty were not working on anything, but it's because they didn't know one, they didn't know what the process was. Sure. And two, they thought it was easier for them to do it rather than coming to the university, because as you know, they might be saying, oh, the university is going to take advantage. And so it took a lot. It took a while for me to develop that relationship with the faculty. So first, I had to make sure I understood the research that they're working on. And I had to genuinely care about the research because they can easily pick up when you when you really don't care, you're just looking to get IP out of their technology. So I had to make sure that I was fully immersed in understanding what their research was and even sometimes say, OK, I know how to help you write this portion because, you know, that's my background. And so I would help in certain areas and that helped build the trust with the faculty and be able to do it. So we went from, let's say, one invention disclosure. This year I've had 15 disclosures, which is the highest I've had 
since I've been here at university. Congratulations. Thank you. So that's that's been really, um, that's been high for us because in a typical year we may have had five to six, but this year has been really good. And I would credit that a lot to the ICO program, to the NSF ICO side program. And I would imagine since you're working so close with faculty, you don't have a science background. So it must be a very, like you said, synergistic relationship because you force that investigator to explain something to someone who doesn't have a science background. And I think that there's probably a lot of really good um, material that comes out of that interaction that way, instead of just talking science all the time. Exactly. And I do have a technical writing background, so I'm able to take the science material and put it in the layman language. And so sometimes, you know, when I ask them to do that, they go, I, I really don't know. This is and I'm able to do that and say, look, this is what you should tell people, because when we're in a meeting, you're talking, you know, the technical jargon. And most of these people do not know. And especially administrators. Right. It goes right over their head and they look at me. So now I'm able to give you a short script as to, you know, the key points that you should bring out on your technology. And I think that has helped them, you know, a lot. And I think it also helped them to know that I don't just care about their technology, but I care about their research. Exactly. And so I used to hear things like, this is my life's work. Um, I've, um, you know, I don't want to just give it to the university. I'm afraid of what will come back. And so one of the first things I did, in fact, we are still going through that process right now of we're doing the the IP policy was to change that way. The majority um, will go back to the faculty rather than to the university. Right. So that was something that helped to build that type of trust from the faculty as well. And then to see that not only that, but working with um, the PTI program, which is um, you may have heard about it, it's coming out of Oregon State University that I was heavily engaged in that because I thought that would be something to help our faculty. So the faculty now knowing that this could possibly something that they can get some tenure and promotion credit from all the work that they're doing and to see that I'm a part of that in bringing it to the campus, it gives them more confidence in the process and say, okay. She has her back. She's going to work on this. And no matter what, at least we know she tried. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So we have that. And they come in, Dr. Campbell, we have this, we have this. And I just give them. So I had to go through a process of, of pre-invention disclosure process. Right. Rather than I have all these um, invention disclosures. So we did a pre-process. We meet, we talk to the process say go back, do X, Y and Z. And then, you know, we'll come back before you actually do an invention disclosure. So that has been a great um, process. But I agree with you um I'm, I'm stretched <laughs> I'm stretched thin I love it I leave with a smile on my face every day because I love um absolutely love what I do um but there's a need to have an office developed um with more people in it and I, I tell other HBCs who do not have a tech transfer office that yes you can start with one person right and you could do it you know for a long time but I wouldn't advise going beyond five years with a one person office because you want to make sure that that your your tech transfer person is a, is a valuable asset to that institution and you want to make sure you take it, their well-being is also taken exactly. care of. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want that person to, you know, feel unappreciated and then leave. So switching gears a little bit, Almisha, I wanted to ask you what you think is most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success. Um, I think first you have to start with the people. You have to care about your innovators, right? And so um, it's okay to say, I want to see the innovation that comes out of a particular place, you know, a particular unit, but what about the person, right? 
So you can have, uh, my thought process is that you can have one great invention or one great innovation um, comes up, but you could have multiple people that needs to be working on that innovation to make it as successful as it, as it can be. Um, and so you want to make sure you take care of those people. You want to make sure that, that they're adequately supported. They may not, um, and I know from my institution, they, are, they may not get a certain salary like other institutions because of our structure and we are state institution. But what other incentives are you providing um, for them to make sure that they operate and they continue to be innovative? Um, because sometimes people, they, they have a lot of great ideas but they think it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't worth my time doing this because I have to put in extra time. I don't, I'm not getting anything for it. It may not be money, it may just be, hey, good job. We support you. We appreciate you. Um, and if they're not getting that, then the innovation and the innovation may not be as successful as they can be. And I think that was one of the reasons why my VP decided we have to come up with a, a comprehensive um, incentive program for faculty, not just the faculty who are conducting research, but those who are innovative, whether it's the curriculum, the way they, they mentor students. We have to provide them some sort of incentive. And we were able to even put in incentives there for people who are working on intellectual property. That's great. Let's talk about corporate partners and the role they've played in tech transfer at Jackson State. Can you give us some examples of the relationships with corporate partners? Um, one of the strongest relationships we have is with Entergy, and Entergy is an energy company located here in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas, and they're actually embedded in our classroom. So um, the, the, the teach classes, we have a, a wonderful MOU with them where we have an energy lab. They also work with any of the students who are coming up with new technologies, or they may give us ideas about problems that they have and that we can solve. And so those are things that we really appreciate having that type of relationship. We also have a good relationship with HP. Like I mentioned previously, they came to our Innovation Center opening. Um, we also have where our faculty are able to do their research with some of the highest um, machinery that they have at HP and be able to test some of that out, especially in the data science area. So we have a strong relationship with them, particularly in the data science area. Now, would you say having corporate partners has led to more deals or maybe differently structured deals? Um, I think different, uh, differently structured deals. Um, one of the things is that for industry partners that want to engage, particularly in the research area, that the state of Mississippi has um, funding that they give, uh, you know, a rebate that they give to them for participating. Of course, the deal cannot be made before they apply for that rebate, but it's a great incentive program. And we're currently working with um, the governor um, and others to try to change that a little bit so that we can work with early startups on our campuses to provide some funding for them, not just the big industry partners, but some of the startups we have on our campus. And I think that one that's one of the biggest programs we have in Mississippi that support um, that type of work. Now, what about the role of philanthropic organizations, things like the Gates Center? Well, we have a Gates Foundation um, grant here at the university that really helps in, in a lot of that area. A lot of it is mainly based on the academic side of the house, um, but it does spill over into the innovation space because the faculty are able to develop um, new tools and technologies for the classroom. And those are some of the things that we see coming out of that relationship with the Gates Foundation. 
Now, reflecting on some of your past license transactions and or maybe partnerships, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now? Oh, <laughs> I know. Monday morning quarterbacking type of question. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of my first licensed <laughs> experience was um, we had a technology back with one of our f- faculty and it was getting a lot of um, press um, what that, that technology was. And I'm not going to say what it is, but we were dealing with um, some uh, potential licenses in the U.S. and some external to the U.S. Right. And what I found out later is that the external potential licensings were more interested in licensing the technology from us so they can shelve it because they had something that they wanted to compete with. Oh, man. And I didn't, you know, that was something that as a newbie, I didn't necessarily understand then. And so um, that was a challenge after I found out, you know, how do I how do I have the communication with this company moving forward, knowing what I know now. So that that was always one of the ones I go back to. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's a great thing about mistakes, though, right? You know, yes. yes, I can make it once, but, you know, you take, you learn from it and it, it doesn't happen again. Yes, yes. <laughs> so can you describe for us some of your office's biggest success stories in terms of whether it's successful technologies or startups? I think one of the um, we still have one right now that in the work that I think is is going to be really successful and it's around the COVID-19 area. And I know that there's vaccines out here, but we don't know where this is going to go. Um, and, and I think I'm looking forward to see how that that works out. But we had two great technologies coming out of the university that are now with the military. Um, the one was around the unmanned aerial um, vehicle area. And so that's with the um, the prototype is now with the army and they're working on that. And then we have another one um, more so in the um, it's in the mathematics area, but that's also with the army as well. I think those were two of our most successful. Unfortunately, you know, when they go to when the government, you know, takes some of them, it's not about you getting royalties or anything, but successful enough that they're helping some yeah. of the work that the military is doing. That's great. Congratulations. Now, you've been involved in doing a lot of things there, Almisha, and you've talked about you've had a lot of success in a short amount of time. Um, What would you say your office's two biggest challenges are? And I think we could all probably guess one of them. Yeah, people. Yeah, people. (laughs) People, um, you know, you want to say people and resources. I'll just say people because I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I would say that the research office um, when when I was first given the opportunity to have a budget for the tech transfer office versus um, still getting my money from the VP of research office, I go, no, I don't want a budget. I just want to send my bills to the VP of research <laughs> office and have them paid. There right? you go. Because they've never pushed them back. Right. And so I realized if I go and have my own budget, then I have to stick to that budget. And then if I keep asking for money outside of the budget, it can pose a challenge. So I like the way it is um, right now. So I wouldn't say the money part is a problem, but the resources, of course, um, like I said, a goal of mine is within two years to have a licensing associate. Um, That's one of the biggest challenge. And I would say possibly the second biggest challenge may be, um, well, it's, it's still with the licensing area because I know there are technologies that we probably could be working on 
um, to get more licensing opportunities, uh, you know, at least to bring that that awareness that Jackson said do have some stuff going on. Um, what other challenge can I think of? Because like I said, I wouldn't really put the money there. Maybe another challenge could possibly be um, awareness around the campus, because even though we're doing things, sometimes you will still get, well, I, you know, I would bring in um, colleagues from other universities or different partners and say, if you're in Jackson, do you want to come and do a short workshop or a short talk or something? We do that. And then the faculty will go, oh, I didn't know that. And I'm looking. I told you that. You know, and so it always seems that. Yeah. And I, I don't want we had a conversation recently. I think I'm not sure if it was. Well, I think it was our women inventors group for autumn. And we talk about how it is in our offices when a woman um, says something to a man versus when we say to a woman in the tech transfer space, what type of response, you know, that you get. And I had to think about it for a moment because I thought most of my challenges were coming from the female faculty, but then I realized no, because every time I bring someone in from external to talk about IP and the tech transfer process, the male faculty go, oh, we didn't know that. You know, and I said, yes, you did, because we talked about that several times. I've given you, you know, written documentation. And so it tells me um, that may be a barrier that I have to work on, not necessarily that it is their issue, um, because if I'm not reaching them in a way that I need to, then I have to figure out how to do a better job, you know, of reaching out to them. That's a great segue, Almisha, to my next question, which involves women inventors and entrepreneurs. Do you have any programs to help encourage and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, would you mind telling us a little bit about them? Yes. So initially, when we started um, writing for the for the ICO program, we worked with folks in the JSU Advanced Program that's funded by NSF. So one of the um, co-PIs was actually the PI for the Advanced Program because we thought that that was a way to get more um, women, you know, participating in the space. And that um, that program initially is where we started doing the recruitment of women um, to participate in the ICO program. And I think it was very successful because we had a few of them coming coming through the program. We also had some who had invention disclosures. One was actually recently received a patent and it was actually nominated and awarded the National Academy of Inventors um, Fellow. Um, last year. So those are things that we've used that work really well here. We're also trying to work with other institutions in in developing a women's program rather than just doing it for Jackson State. How can we partner with other universities in the state of Mississippi to do that? That's awesome. Congratulations. That's that's really great to hear. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about Autumn. You've been an active member and leader in Autumn for quite some time. Can you tell us what Autumn's meant to you? Um, Autumn is is the place that I go to for resources. Um, I would say even before I became active, um, as you know, Autumn is is huge. Um, when we talk about small offices, and I'm I'm engaging those conversations, someone say, "Oh, my office is seven. I say, "You're not small." You know, <laughs> to me, you're medium size because I'm a small office with a one person. So a lot of times I couldn't um, necessarily relate um, to some of the the challenges that we're having. But what I found is that as I get those um, conversations in the, the community groups 
that those were very helpful. And sometimes one person may ask a question and I'm I'm copying, you know, and saving in some of the chats because the information in there I'm learning from, I'm absorbing the information. Someone may put and ask a question about, you know, how do you structure this type of an agreement of agreement? And someone would say, here you go. Here's here's my example. Well, that's my example as well, you know, because I may not have asked a question, but I have that same, you know, challenge or question and I'm able to get that. So that's the first place for me that I felt comfortable in those groups and, and learning and reading the materials and the newsletters and just absorbing that information, you know, as much as I can. And then, of course, I always encourage people to participate in the webinars because those bring some valuable information to you, um, especially if you're not able to travel to a lot of the conferences and different things. I've been fortunate to go to some of those. So that's valuable. One of the things that I said I was so happy about this year is to be a part of the EDI committee. I think they're doing really great work. And with Megan at the helm, I mean, she's a no-nonsense type of person who's going to make sure it happens. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm part of that committee, too. And I really feel like um, we're doing really good things and moving forward all the time. She's an awesome leader. I completely agree with you on that. Yes. And I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm When I learned that I can no longer be a part of the committee as a board member, that was one of the saddest things. That we will definitely miss you. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But I also love being a part of Women Inventors SIG. I love the work that they're doing for women on different campuses to try to learn about um, what some of the challenges women are having. How can we develop a toolkit for women inventors? Um, how can we encourage more women inventors on different campuses? I love the work of those two committees. And I'm glad I'm able to at least stay with the women inventors. Thing. Yeah, I'm glad for you on that one, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> what about um, other organizations? You mentioned LES when you first got into tech transfer. Besides LES, any other organizations that you're involved with? Yes, I actually have not been as active with LES over the last couple of years. As you know, it's quite an expensive. Um, very. Um, yes, it's very expensive. So I'm a member, so I can, same thing, get the resources, but I I don't go to the conferences. I find them to be very expensive and I can come to Autumn and learn a lot of that. And I have more in common, you know, coming to the Autumn arena where I can meet different people. But um, other organizations I'm a part of, I'm a part of, um, the Mississippi Women um, in, in Education Network. I've hosted that for two years as the site coordinator. So that, that gave me great joy to see the mentorship of women in higher education and how the women who have done great things, you know, reach back and, you know, be able to mentor other women, no matter which level they are in at the, at the university. And so that's really good. And that's fall on the ACE. And I'm also involved with... Um, the ASPA, which is the Association for Public Administrators, my PhD is in public administration, uh, you know, I'm, I'm policy. So I spend a lot of time reading those materials, engaging in, in that field. But um, I also do different, you know, there are different organizations I'm a part of, you know, a part of that. Um, I'm a part of them a lot of times is the connection, you know, get to know people in different areas because I never know when I need, you know, advice from anyone, need mentorship or just ask some questions. And it's always good to have those available to you um, so that you can be a part of. And a lot of it is most around me trying to figure out, 
you know, where do I fit in? Where's my, what I know that a lot of my calling is to deal with the young people. And I spend a lot of my life um, in my community working with the young people. I have two sectors of people that, that brings me joy. And those are the children and the elderly. Like I spend, you know, the people my age, sometimes I'm said, no, that's not my space. I rather. (laughs) (laughs) So the babies, you know, um, I've spent maybe 15 years of my life spending, you know, every week with the young people, groups of 15 or more. And then um, spend a lot of time with the elderly as well. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. What is your view on credentialing, things like registered tech transfer professional, the RTTP designation? Do you have a thought on that? Um, not not anything specific. I've looked into that before and and different stuff. I've I've have I haven't thought of, about doing it for myself, but I've looked into to see, you know, what it's about. I think it has its merit um for some people, depending on where you are. I don't think it necessarily have merit for me here at, you know, Jackson State University. But of course, it doesn't mean that I'm spending my entire career at Jackson State. I hope not. <laughs> but <laughs> but, you know, it might be valuable um, for someplace else. And then when you see somebody, for example, with RTTP, you know that that person has done great things. They had all these wonderful licensing deals and, you know, done some work. And I have I have a lot of respect you know, for people who have done stuff like that. It, it may not necessarily be for everybody, but, you know, I still respect, you know, people who have done a lot of that in the career because I'm young in this in, in this career. I'm still young in my life, um, even though I don't feel like it on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> probably because of a lack of sleep. But I have a lot of respect um, for credentialing. And, you know, when people talk about people, um, why they don't have a PhD or a law degree or different stuff, I say it's not for everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the fourth of seven siblings and I'm the only one who decided to come and get a, a degree. Right. And so I and I look at my siblings and some of them are much more successful than I am. Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> well, Misha, I generally like to end the podcast by asking my guests if they could have any three wishes granted or a vision for Jackson State realized, what would that be? All right. So I think one of them I would love to see is that our students are um, are given all the opportunity in the world to succeed. And I think we we are working towards that. I I love the fact that we are creating programming um, for them, that we are creating spaces like the Innovation Center. We're working on, you know, football. Of course, that's a big thing for some people. So I love the fact that they recruited Dan Saunders to come and do that. That's Um, awesome. Yes, but just want to make sure that our students have the resources in order to matriculate and to be able to compete in the global economy. Um, The second one, I would love to see that the school is funded appropriately. Um, As I explained to you, we are historically black college, you know, university. We also state, you know, funded. um, But a lot of times those funding do not allow us to do some of the things or to compete, you know, the way we, we could. And our students sometimes come in and they're brilliant students. I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of them and they have great jobs when they leave this institution. Um, and I want to see that for more of them. Um, my third would be, um, I guess it's just for people to understand that Jackson State is resilient. You know, um, 
given whatever issues we've been here since 1877, and my motto is that we're going to be here some more, right? So support us, you know, I'd like to see, uh, you know, people, um, you know, some of our alumni is making sure that this institution prospers. I think those are three fantastic wishes, and I I hope you get them sooner rather than later. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, Almisha, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. Um, One of the places I always say people to go to LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, Almisha. um, I think it's Almisha Richardson Campbell, um, but also my email address is Almisha, A-L-M-E. S H A dot L as in Larry dot Campbell C A M P B E L L at J S U M S dot E D U. You can always find me, you know, like I said, there, LinkedIn or Twitter, Almisha L C on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Almisha. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much, Lisa, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.